I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Yarjarsi on her latest novel, Transcendent Kingdom. Yar Jarsi was born in Mampong, Ghana, and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. Her first novel, Homegoing, was a Sunday Times bestseller, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Best First Novel, and was shortlisted for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. In 2017, she was selected as one of Granter's Best of Young American Novelists, and in 2019, the BBC selected her debut as one of the 100 novels that shaped our world. And Yar's latest novel is Transcendent Kingdom, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yar, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell me, first of all, how you would describe this novel. So Transcendent Kingdom is about a woman named Gifty who is completing a PhD um, at Stanford in neuroscience. And she studies a phenomenon called the neural circuitry of reward-seeking behavior, which for lay people just means that she studies things like addiction and depression. And it's at a time in her life when her own mother, who is quite depressed, has come to stay with her. So she finds herself taking care of her mother while also doing this research, while also reflecting on her childhood, uh, particularly the circumstances that led up to her beloved older brother's passing from an opioid overdose. Um, So it's a book about uh, family, about mother-daughter relationships, um, about immigration, about religion, and about science. Now, obviously, your debut, Homegoing, was a a historical epic, a a sprawling, multi-generational story. This one, obviously, as you've just described, it covers some big issues, you know, there's big ideas in it, but it's focused down on one single family, and indeed a family that's getting smaller, not getting larger. You know, it never, it didn't really feel like a conscious choice. Um, From the beginning of Transcendent Kingdom, it just seemed like a more intimate story, like a, a smaller canvas in that way. I wanted to focus on the way that uh, trauma worked in a family, um, which is a theme in Homegoing as well. Um, But in this case, it was a much smaller family. It just felt natural. I think so much of Transcendent Kingdom is about the ways that isolation has affected this one woman, Gifty's life, 
And in order to kind of capture that isolation, that loneliness, I needed the I needed the smaller scale. Um, Gifty just isn't a character who has this kind of abundant family life. Her family moves to the States before she's born. And once they get here, they're kind of cut off from the larger extended family. Homegoing obviously had characters who were also cut off from family, but I feel like the point of that book was to kind of show this broader family, to show the family tree in its fullness, to see the way that these cutoffs impact the individual. Um, Transcendent Kingdom, we're just starting with a single branch and, and that's it. So Gifty, as you said, she's a neuroscientist. She's working on on a PhD and carrying out a particular experiments and this is a real thing tell us what it is she's doing and where where this came from why you used it in the book sure um so gifty is conducting this experiment well i i think i call it in the book like a behavioral testing chamber Um, basically she puts mice into this chamber that she's created and she trains the mice to press a lever for a reward. Um, In this case, it's like a chocolatey milk drink. When they press the lever, the milk floods into the straw. They're all excited. And then after some time, she changes the conditions. So sometimes when they press the lever, they get the drink. And other times when they press the lever, they get a mild foot shock instead. And there's no pattern to it. So the the mice never figure out when or why these shocks are happening. Um, And what she discovers is that some of the mice, you know, stop pressing the lever, but others don't stop. Those mice, the ones who are effectively addicted to the drink, are the ones that she uses to study the neural pathways that are involved in addiction. Um, And I I came to this uh, research via my own best friend. Her name is Tina Kim. She is a, a neuroscientist herself. And when I started writing this book, we were both living in California. She was finishing up her PhD at Stanford. I should mention she's a friend from childhood. So it just kind of was random that she ended up at Stanford, which is my my own alma mater. Um, but at any rate, she was finishing up her PhD there. And around that time, she had a major paper published that I, I wanted to read. Um, I thought that I understood what she did, but while I tried and failed to read this paper, I realized that I had no idea what she did. Um, And so I just kind of asked if she would allow me to shadow her in her lab. At that point, I didn't really know that I was writing a book. I just kind of wanted to get a better understanding of her research. Um, And thankfully uh, and graciously, she said yes. And so I spent the day with her. And um, the day I went, she was performing this surgery on her mice that I detail in the opening pages of Transcendent Kingdom. And I just found it so, so fascinating, found her research so fascinating. Uh, The whole process was unlike anything, obviously, that I ever spend my day thinking about. And I have found that those places where your own curiosity is sparked Um, Those places that feel incredibly different, but also fertile, are the best places to lean into for creative work. So it felt natural to want to know more, and it felt natural to, to try to think about it through fiction. So why is Gifty drawn to science? 
Gifty is drawn to science, I think, because she's drawn to order. She's a child who experiences, as a child rather, she experiences a great deal of chaos. Um, she grows up in a home that has fractured in a number of ways. She grows up surrounded by psychiatric illness, mental illness, and because of this and the kind of disorder and chaos that this creates in her life, she finds herself very early on being drawn to things that make a kind of sense. And for her, I think science and math are arenas where, you know, as she would put it, when you do things the way you're supposed to, you get the result that you're expected to get. Um, so I think science for her becomes uh, a process by which she can feel some semblance of control, um, which is particularly useful to her because she grew up uh, not feeling much control at all. There's a discussion in the book as well of her idea that she she wants to be seen as a scientist. She's in it for how difficult it is, and as you said, the order and control, but she's mm. very keen to be seen as a scientist and not a black scientist or a woman scientist or a black woman scientist, mm. but just a scientist. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I think of Gifty as a character who has, you know, spent so many years kind of absorbing all of the negative messaging, all of uh, the microaggressions um, around race and gender. You know, she grew up in a pretty patriarchal household in the South, um, in a religious community that is itself patriarchal. Uh, and on top of that, she grew up as one of the few, actually the only Black people in her church and one of the few Black people um, on her side of town. And so I think, you know, she she isn't shielded from the racism and the misogyny that accompany that particular place and those particular communities. Um, and I think as a result, as she grows up, she has quite a bit of internalized racism, internalized misogyny to work through. So there's that moment that you mentioned when she says to uh, the reader that she wants to be thought of as a scientist full stop, not a Black scientist, not a woman scientist. And what I see there in that moment is that she's a character who does not see those identity qualifiers as enhancing her work, as being part of what makes her work great. Rather, she has kind of absorbed the message that these are limitations, which is quite sad given the fact that I don't think she would be doing this particular research into addiction had it not been for the way that she was raised. And you can't extract her Blackness and her womanness from that story. So if only she could see that those enhance her work they don't diminish it. But she's a character who says at some point, you know, that she calls this moment where she overhears two women at her church talking about her, her brother's addiction in racist terms. She calls that moment a spiritual wound. Um, and she says that she spends her whole life trying to find and address it, but that she doesn't always see it. Um, and I think that moment where she calls herself a scientist full stop is an example of her not quite seeing it. So she's attempted to set up for herself this ordered life. And then, as you said, into that comes back into her life, her mother, who has had a, a history of, of mental illness and again is, is going through an episode. She moves in with her and basically yeah. spends most of the rest of the novel in bed in her apartment. Yeah. 
I want to talk about the, the relationship between Gifty and her mother, who she, she describes as the black mamba. And I guess one of the sort of central things that Gifty is always sort of tussling with here is actually how similar she and her mother are. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think Gifty would be deeply offended, <laughs> uh, deeply resistant to hearing that she and her mother are quite similar. And yet the more you read the book, the, the clearer it is that Gifty's reticence um, comes directly from her mother, her guardedness, her unwillingness to be vulnerable with people that she loves. All of those traits, I think, can be traced directly to her mother and the way her mother engaged with other people, particularly with Gifty herself. And I want to talk about the the family dynamic as well, which is, this is not loveless, that's the wrong word, but it's certainly a family that lacks in affection and closeness, what the mother calls at one point, um, white people foolishness. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of an interesting take for me, because I always imagine the sort of Southern white wasp family as being the family that are like, you know, emotionally distant. And mm. and so it's it's interesting to see that replicated here. And also, of course, her mother has these over the years series of menial roles being, you know, fundamentally mothering, caring yeah. for other people's families. Yeah, well, that, that's the irony of this is that the mother spends so much time as a caregiver outside of the home. She works basically in the homes of the elderly, taking care of them as they transition toward death. And in those roles, she is tender. She is probably still firm in the ways that she's firm elsewhere in her life, in her parenting. But she does kind of assume this mothering role toward other people. Yet, because of the long hours um, and the, the kind of harshness and difficulty of the job, she often when she returns home to her own children, she doesn't seem to have very much left to give. Um, And so Gifty and Nana, her brother, are raised with this uh, woman who is mostly absent, and yet when she is present, isn't giving them the same kind of mothering attention that she uses at her job. And so they are, as you said, um, they are raised in an environment that is less affectionate um, than I think that they need, um, and certainly than, than they want. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Yara Jarsi and we're talking about her latest novel, Transcendent Kingdom. And Yara, let's spend some time talking about Nana, the brother, or, or as people in the area call him, Nornor. Mm-hmm. Tell us something about who he is or who he was. Um, sure. So Nana is the, the firstborn child of Gifty's parents and he was a much desired much prayed for child. They they thought that they couldn't have children. And so when they had him, obviously being as religious as they are, they thought of him as this great gift from God. And in that way, I think he he kind of gains this kind of larger than life role within the family. He's so deeply beloved. And when they're first in America, they discover that Nana has a great talent, first on the soccer field and then and then in basketball. And so this kind of beloved figure becomes beloved not just by his family, but by the entire community because he starts to win basketball games um, and bring people to the stands, people to the seats to watch these basketball games Um, and so he becomes I think this minor celebrity in their town meanwhile you know the family is going through its own kind of personal turmoil its own personal chaos and trauma that is obviously deeply affecting Nana's life but outside the home I think what you see is um, his belovedness his joy his brilliance his athleticism I don't know if you can hear my dog I can hear (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that's my dog in the background if you want to add that to the to the show but at any rate during one of Nana's games he ends up hurting his ankle and when he goes to the hospital he's prescribed Oxycontin um, and, and he pretty quickly becomes addicted to it. And this is the, the turning point for every member of the family's life. So, yeah, the oxy addiction, this is obviously this enormous scandal that, that has swept America and I'd say, you know, particularly working class, former industrial areas of America, just a whole generation of people basically addicted to painkillers to to opioids and and indeed this is what happens with with nana is that something you wanted to write about that wider scandal it is something that i wanted to write about i mean 
for me, the, the research came first. The idea of this neuroscientist who studies addiction and depression came first. Um, but when I started thinking about how addiction would affect Gifty's personal life, I immediately thought of opioids um, because of the crisis in America, um, the ongoing epidemic that is frankly only worsening as we move in parallel with this, with this pandemic. Um, I think people are struggling even more now with their addictions. Um, but at any rate, at the time that I started working on this novel, we started to see here in the States a lot more reporting happening around the opioid crisis, reporting that I thought was incredibly sensitive and nuanced and humanizing and willing to kind of think about opioid addiction as a healthcare crisis and not just a, a criminal issue. There were, you know, pieces in the New York Times that followed grandparents who were having to take care of their children, rather their grandchildren, because their children um, were suffering from opioid use disorder. Um, there was a great documentary that followed a uh, firefighter who was training her team to be first responders on the scene of overdose cases. Um, all of these really excellent pieces were coming out, and I found it really moving. In addition, obviously, there was also the um, criminal trials coming out around the Sackler family, and the kind of investigation into pharmaceutical companies' roles in creating this issue, which again was something that I hadn't really seen before in previous crises, previous epidemics in the States, particularly around heroin in the 60s and crack in the 80s. And the difference between those previous epidemics and this current one, I think, is just the fact that this current one is largely affecting white people in rural and suburban areas rather than Black people in, in cities. And so I wanted to write a novel that took the same kind of humanizing, nuanced, um, familial, larger environment response to addiction, uh, but to place a Black family at the center. So the family reside in Huntsville, Alabama. You also grew up yourself in Huntsville, Alabama. It's Obviously, Alabama is, you know, very much the South, but Huntsville also, it's a college town. And even more than that, it's a science town. NASA is there. Uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, so for yourself, really, what was that like to grow up there? Yeah, Huntsville is is interesting because it is this little, you know, blue dot that floats in the sea of red. Um, it's a as you said, it's a college town. There are uh, several universities there, and there's also NASA. And so there's a, a large population of scientists and engineers who who come to work for NASA or for the um, for the arsenal that's there, the military base that's there. For a time, it had the distinction of having the most PhDs per capita of any U.S. city, and people are often kind of shocked to hear that uh, that, that distinction would, would apply to a, a city in Alabama, and yet it did. It was an incredibly segregated town, and my family lived on the predominantly white part of town, South Huntsville. North Huntsville is predominantly Black, um, so there was um, division in that sense. But overall, I think it was a unique town to grow up in. Certainly doesn't, I think, often live up to many of the stereotypes that you hear about the South, specifically about Alabama. 
Yeah, I was most struck by something you've just said. The family go to a church in the novel. And again, when I think of America, one of the areas of life that still seems to be most segregated is the church. There are white churches and there are black churches. And this family goes to... Uh, well, they're the only black family in a in a white church in the book. And I wondered if that was something you'd experienced yourself. And, and the way that you just said also that the family lived in the white area of, of Huntsville as well. Growing up yourself, is there an obvious distinction between... And not, this would not be something, obviously, that would be apparent to the, you know, to the white people of the South, but is there a distinction between, you know, someone who is African-American and someone who is well, African-American. So somebody who was brought to America against their will generations ago compared to somebody like yourself who's who's an immigrant from, you know, a modern-day immigrant from an African country. Um, Well, there there were obvious distinctions for me, and I think that really just came across from the fact that I came to America when I was two. And so I think I, I felt more inclined to identify with other first-generation immigrants, other people who were experiencing the kind of assimilation or lack thereof that I was experiencing. That sense of otherness being around ethnic lines was one that, that I knew quite well. Obviously, race plays into it. Race is a factor. Um, But I think one big difference is that culturally, I had this long history. I could trace my lineage back to the Ashanti people, back to the Fanti people. And I had the stories, I had the family and, and African Americans here do not have that. You know, they were, I think one of the great tragedies of the transatlantic slave trade is the fact that it ripped these families apart in completely irreparable ways. And so, so you lose that lineage, you lose that history. And instead, what you have is this incredibly violent, incredibly traumatizing history of of this country. And I always had something else in addition to that. Um, And so I think in some ways, I recognized myself as Ghanaian uh, first, Black second when I was a child. But again, that's a distinction that's obviously lost on on a huge part of the population as well. I'm thinking in particular, there's a section of the book where the father, who, who Gifty and Nun are called the Chin Chin Man, who eventually becomes so sick of, of life in America. And there's a point where he describes existing in America while inhabiting the body of a black man in terms of how other people react to him. Yeah, that's right. I think their father never really gets comfortable with life in America. Um, You know, he didn't really want to move here in the first place. His wife convinced him to. And once he comes, um, not only does he end up in a a racist country, but he ends up in Alabama, um, a particularly racist state with a particularly racist history. Um, And for a person and people, I'd say the whole family, um, to have come from this country where everyone is Black and therefore they had not experienced anti-Black racism in this particular way, obviously colonialism is its own kind of bag, but to come to America and experience anti-Black racism in this way, I think was, was really just a bridge too far for him. 
we've barely touched on how one of the major themes of the book is, you know, the idea of searching for meaning in faith or in science and whether or not the two things are compatible. And to talk about that, I'd like to talk about the way in which those two different ideas affect the style of the book. There's passages in the book where Gifty is talking about the science, talking about her work. I've read a lot of memoirs of scientists, working scientists over the years, and that's what these parts read like. They read entirely ring true as the words of a working scientist. And then the parts where she is thinking about wider ideas are often a lot more sort of like lyrical, you know, in terms of the way that they're written. And I wonder if, I wondered if you'd say something about that. Yeah, I wanted this book to have um, many different textures um, because obviously Gifty's life is incredibly layered. Um, I was reading quite a few science memoirs um, to prepare to research this book. And and so it strikes me as appropriate that you would have picked up on, on that kind of tone when Gifty is, is talking about science. But at the same time, you know, I think the, the biggest part of Gifty's life, one of the biggest parts of Gifty's life was her relationship to religion, this evangelical Pentecostal religion of her childhood that she, that she ultimately lived but that I think kind of informs so much of how she sees the world and and even the work that she does. And that kind of lineage, that of religious writing, religious thinking is so incredibly lyrical and um, and almost performative. I mean, I, I grew up in the church as well. And I'm thinking about those Sundays where you would hear a sermon that is almost like a piece of theater, like a, a beautiful piece of theater in, in many cases. So to have that tradition in her life, um, to grow up with that kind of lyricism, that kind of reverence for the beauty of language, um, spoken language as well as written language, I couldn't imagine it not informing Gifty's life. And so she has both. She has that kind of technical scientific writing that you see when she's talking about case studies that she's read, for example. But she also has that kind of searching, transcendent writing that you see when she's, um, you know, talking about the church or writing these, these journal entries. Can I get you to read this a bit then to finish? Sure. I'm just going to read from the very beginning. Whenever I think of my mother... I picture a queen-sized bed with her lying in it, a practice stillness filling the room. For months on end, she colonized that bed like a virus, the first time when I was a child, and then again when I was a graduate student. The first time, I was sent to Ghana to wait her out. While there, I was walking through Kejitia Market with my aunt when she grabbed my arm and pointed, Look, a crazy person, she said in Chui. Do you see a crazy person? I was mortified. My aunt was speaking so loudly, and the man, tall with dust caked into his dreadlocks, was with an earshot. I see, I see, I answered in a low hiss. The man continued past us, mumbling to himself as he waved his hands about in gestures that only he could understand. My aunt nodded, satisfied. And we kept walking past the hordes of people gathered in that agoraphobia-inducing market until we reached the stall where we would spend the rest of the morning attempting to sell knockoff handbags. In my three months there, we sold only four bags. 
Even now, I don't completely understand why my aunt singled the man out to me. Maybe she thought there were no crazy people in America, that I had never seen one before. Or maybe she was thinking about my mother, about the real reason I was stuck in Ghana that summer, sweating in a stall with an aunt I hardly knew while my mother healed at home in Alabama. I was 11, and I could see that my mother wasn't sick, not in the ways that I was used to. I didn't understand what my mother needed healing from. I didn't understand, but I did. And my embarrassment at my aunt's loud gesture had as much to do with my understanding as it did with the man who had passed us by. My aunt was saying that, that is what crazy looks like. But instead, what I heard was my mother's name. What I saw was my mother's face, still as lake water, the pastor's hand resting gently on her forehead, his prayer a light hum that made the room buzz. I'm not sure I know what crazy looks like, but even today, when I hear the word, I picture a split screen, a dreadlocked man in Ketchatia on one side, my mother lying in bed on the other. I think about how no one at all reacted to that man in the market, not in fear or disgust, nothing, save my aunt who wanted me to look. He was, it seemed to me, at perfect peace, even as he gesticulated wildly, even as he mumbled. But my mother, in her bed, infinitely still, was wild inside. So I've been talking to Yara Jarsi. We've been talking about her new novel, Transcendent Kingdom, which is out in the UK from Penguin Viking. Yara, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.